Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. There are so many stars out there and so many planets a bigger number than most of us can conceive. Right now, we're just hoping to find a sign of life. We won't know if that sign is from a little green humanoid or if it's just from simple single-celled bacteria. There's really no reason not to believe that's possible somewhere. But we're just hoping it's true somewhere close enough to us that someday in the future, generations in the future, we can somehow make contact. That's astronomer Sarah Seeger. She's devoted her career to searching for life on planets beyond the solar system using a method she pioneered as a graduate student. She's written a book about it called The Smallest Lights in the Universe. But as you'll hear from our conversation, her book is about much more. It's an unusually frank account of pursuing a high-stakes career at a major university while coping with a devastating personal loss and emerging triumphant. This is great to be talking with you because... You've had such a distinguished career, even though you're young, including the MacArthur Grant. So I'm talking to an official genius, which is very nice. When did you first become obsessed with the night sky? Well, I first noticed the night sky as a child, actually. I wouldn't say I was obsessed with it by any means, but I always noticed the moon. You know how the full moon is always staring at you? It's always there. It's always there, exactly. And I remember at one of the earliest ages how being in the car with my dad, the moon was always following us. No matter how far we went or where the car turned, it was just always around. And a bit later, I got to see the dark night sky. I hope you've seen it. It's incredibly, breathtakingly just astonishing. Yes, yes, I have. It's it's spectacular. I remember seeing that for the very first time when I was about 10 years old. And I was shocked. I was wondering why no one had explained that existed. It was so amazing and beautiful. That was because you lived in the city, right? You, where was it, Toronto? That's right. I lived in the city. So the, the lights of the city obscured the sky. So it, it, suddenly the sky was there for the first time for you. Exactly. Did that have an effect, do you think, on, on your life's work? It did, but it was a buried effect. I didn't think about it very much until I was older. But then when you really did become obsessed, you became obsessed not just with the stars, but planets, 
planets, not in our solar system, but around other stars. That's right. Exoplanets, planets that orbit stars other than the sun. I was actually a graduate student looking for a thesis project right when the first planets around sun-like stars were first discovered. So that got you involved in a serious way, I guess. I got involved in a serious way, although at the time, the field was not very serious. People didn't take it seriously. They didn't believe that the new data really showed that planets existed beyond our solar system. It was a bit of a mess. So the, the first way to try to figure out if there were planets around other stars was not to see the planet itself because it was obscured, it's too small, obscured by sunlight from the, its own star, but you could determine how much the gravitational effect of the planet had on its star by how much the star wobbled, is that right? That's right, that's right. As the planet orbits the star, the star actually moves because of the presence of the planet. So at what point did you enter the search? Were you looking at first for the wobble, or, or had you come up with the idea of trying to detect the atmosphere of the planet? Atmosphere. The planets were first reported, and my then-thesis advisor, Professor Dimitar Saslov at Harvard, he asked if I wanted to work on atmospheres of exoplanets. And not really knowing any better, because it was such a new discovery, that I said, sure, why not? And we worked on this topic about what the atmospheres might look like, how we might try to measure them, and the rest took off from there. Did you actually come up with the idea of figuring out what chemicals were in the atmosphere? I did. What happened was, as more and more planets became discovered, there was a growing chance that one of the exoplanets would be, in a sense, very lucky, and that the planet would be aligned in its orbit so that the planet would go in front of the star, as seen from our telescopes, called a transit. And back in the late 1990s, I was just waiting for one of those to happen, to be discovered. And so the method I worked on, I called it transit transmission spectra. It's kind of a big phrase, but it means when the planet goes in front of the star, some of the starlight will shine through the atmosphere. And by measuring the star by itself, and by measuring the star when the planet's in front of it, we can actually tell what's in the atmosphere because the atmosphere blocks some of the starlight depending on which chemicals are in the planet atmosphere. Now, I got the impression reading your book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, that you actually came up with the idea that that could work. And then you weren't invited to be part of the group <laughs> yeah. to try to make it work. Yes. Uh, as you know, in not, no, no matter what field you work in, there's a lot of politics. And I was a young postdoctoral researcher, very young, and the team decided that they needed someone more senior, more older, to be on the team instead of me. Doesn't sound reasonable to me, because the person who thinks it up exactly. might have some good ideas about how to implement it. Well, I'm glad you're with me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was super angry at the time. I can put myself right back to the very moment and just feel the anger bubbling up. But I try to let that go. I don't, I don't dwell on it. There's bigger things ahead. Sounds like one wonderful piece of good luck you had in your work, which finally did obsess you, as far as I can tell from your book, was that you married a man who could let you concentrate on finding planets while he took care of most of the other daily distractions of 
ordinary life. But then, and you, you talk about this very movingly in the book, your husband died at a young age, and you described feeling like a rogue planet. I had heard of rogue planets, but I never got the sense of it that I got reading your book. A planet that's not tied to any solar system, but just roaming through the universe all on its own. Right. Tell me a little bit more about that. What was that like for you? Well, just to back up a little, I was one of those people who apparently had it all. I had the great career at MIT as a professor with tenure at a very young age. I was working in my dream job, one that I was very good at that I also loved doing. I had two children. I was still able to be a mom, have two children. And I lived in what was supposedly my dream home. Everything was great. And then all of a sudden, my husband got a stomach ache that just started getting worse. And, you know, it's really, uh, the doctors usually don't listen or don't believe you. And it took a while, but it turned out it was pretty much the worst thing imaginable. It was stage three cancer. And at every junction where you, we've, some of us have been through cancer scares, you know, you'll, you have a friend or you yourself may have had a test that was bad and then you get a biopsy and you might be lucky and off road. Oh, it was nothing. It's benign or it's nothing at all. But some people are unlucky. And at every one of those junctions, it's bad news. Okay, it is cancer. It's stage three. It might not have spread. It has spread. Chemo might or might not work. It didn't work. Another chemo might do better. That failed. And then eventually you run out of options. And going through, you know, that roller coaster of treatment, I know a lot of people have gone through it, but it's excruciating. It's so hard to just try to, like, compartmentalize and grab onto anything good. And it just went from bad to worse until I had to help what was my then best friend ever, like to help him die and to have a good death at home. And that itself was really hard. But then what you don't realize, you know, is then you're left to pick up the pieces. Just like surviving without that person, the two little kids, the job, all the chores. It just was like, I'm just trying to remember, it was a while ago now, but it's just a lot. Feeling alone, feeling like the rogue planet, seems to have been materially helped by your kind of accidental falling in with a group of young widows. I think for a lot of us, when we look back, somehow the pain isn't something that sticks with us. Like, I have to try hard to remember the sad and horrible things, because when I think of being a widow, I, I want to laugh and think of the fun, great, crazy times I had with the group of widows. Mm. We called ourselves the Widows of Concord. That's our town. Our town has 19,000 people. And we were a group of six or later seven women. Seems disproportionate. It really seems disproportionate. And, and these were all young widows. Widows between, you know, in their early 40s mostly. This was a group of widows with children, and there were so many children. Each child had a peer of the same, pretty much of the same age and gender. And the widows were crazy funny, like a dark sense of humor. It was sad times, a lot of tears, but a lot of laughter and practical advice. Like what? Well, the number one topic initially was how to stay afloat financially. Stuff about taxes and, for me, babysitters and household help. And after that, the number two topic, which not everyone participated in, was dating. And I think that's common to not just widows, but divorced people or even single people. It's a definitely a topic you can sink your teeth into. And after time went by, um, the 
priorities of the topics reversed. And then dating became like the number one, you know, gossiping. You have to have some lighthearted, like, stuff to talk about and forget about all that serious, heavy stuff for a while. While all of this was going on, unlike many of the other women, you did have a job. Were there headwinds against you in the job or were you able to make progress? I definitely made progress. My job was the saving focus for me because I could get my mind off grief and the horrible mess that I had, the hole I had to dig out of. And not only that, there's this amazing thing that happened where I try to describe it as there were no shadows. I had an immense sense of clarity of what really mattered at work and at home. Because when you think of your everyday life, um, commuting or my, my widow friend Melissa called it ant noise. When you see the ants, you know, they get into your apartment or your house and they're always kind of moving around. They appear aimless in a way. And she called the whole world ant noise. But when you're dealing with grief, you know, you're so angry and you're so fragile, you don't do all those things that are annoying anymore. You have like no tolerance for irritation. Hmm. So I was able to work and get a lot done, focus, be very clear, just because I knew what mattered. And if people ask me to do things, if something was annoying, or it's a no. It's no, no, sorry, that's, that's not going to work for me. And so it was a really, in some ways, like liberating. It seems to me that you had a, an evolutionary process you went through, thanks to the Widows of Concord. You actually did meet somebody who you fell in love with. Melissa took me aside one day, and she told me I had to start dating. And her reason wasn't because she thought I needed to get married again. Her reason was because, in her opinion, which I agree with, you can never fully recover until you go through all the things that you had going on with the person you loved who died. What do you mean? What does that mean? Okay, so that means that the first date I go on or the first boyfriend I would have after my husband died would be a complete disaster because going out with that person would really remind me more of certain things I missed about my husband that I couldn't explore in any other way. And I'll never forget the look on the man's face who I I was dating, who I tried to explain this to, who was also (laughs) with. He was... Maybe not a good idea to bring him into the discussion too early. (laughs) No, because he was also a widower. But that moment he realized it was never going to work out (laughs) because of... (laughs) Of that reason. (laughs) Yeah, that was not one of my finer moments. Somewhere along the way, you discovered that you were autistic, and that was a surprise to you. How did that happen? How did you find that out? Well, at one point, a writer profiled me in an article he wrote for the New York Times magazine. And this writer or at the time had a young son who is autistic. Hmm. And apparently he recognized I was autistic, but he didn't want to ask me because he said, it's like, you don't want to ask someone if she's pregnant, just in case she's not pregnant. She might just be, you know, a little fat in the wrong way. So he didn't want to ask me, but he was really curious. So instead in the article, he wrote it kind of cryptically that I was autistic. He just said something like, she's wired in her own special way, her own very different, unusual way. And what happened was one of my mentors, Bob Williams, he's former director of the Hubble Space Telescope. His wife has been a doctor in autism for a very long time. And they discussed this line in the article. And then he called me and said, wow, my wife is sure you're autistic. And I said, no, that's not possible. 
And we kind of went back and forth for a bit, and I kind of then I let it rest for a while. And eventually it dawned on me that it's, wow, it's got to be true. It's such a great explanation for why I've been so quirky, so rigidly on my schedule, and why I appear so robotic to the outside world, why I never had any friends as a child. And just to satisfy my own curiosity, I did go to a doctor to find out whether I was autistic or not. And I definitely was without question. What I didn't appreciate was the pity in her eyes, because I have no problem with this. Mm. But That's she just had this pity, and it's like, I, I just wanted to know, you know, I didn't need the pity to go along with that. Was there a sense of relief for you, or a sense of, ah, that's what it is? Now, now I, I, that explains a lot without a feeling of, oh my God, I've got a, I've got a problem. Yeah, it was such a sense of relief, and I'm so glad I was never diagnosed as a child, because... Why I do, is that? What would you have well, gone through? I've, hel- I've helped some younger people with autism, and there's a shame. There's a stigma and a shame uh-huh. that I feel like their parents put on these kids, yeah. that they have, to, they have to get over that, whereas I never had that. I was loved unconditionally by my dad, although he was a very harsh critic. I knew he loved me unconditionally, and I think that really helped my self-esteem. And being older and being diagnosed when I feel good about myself, I've come to be happy with myself and to love myself. The diagnosis was not hurtful in any way. In fact, it was very helpful because we did mention me dating again. And, you know, obviously the first one (laughs) didn't work out, but I met the most amazing man and fell head over heels in a huge love for Charles. And we eventually got married and he adopted my two boys. Mm. Well, Charles was always giving me a hard time about certain things. And as soon as I found out, we found out I was autistic, it actually made that relationship a lot better. He's got a great sense of humor. So he read some articles and he said, wow, the only thing missing from these articles is your picture. (laughs) And yeah, I think it helped a lot because certain things that I do, it's not because I'm cold-hearted. He would realize I'm not being mean or cold-hearted. It's just that's how my brain works. Yeah. And so it has been helpful, but you have to be careful not to use it too much of an excuse. My older son once said, huh, seems like you're just autistic when it's convenient for you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been a funny journey with that. When we come back from our break, Sarah Seeger tells me about her role in the remarkable and controversial claim that there may be life lurking in the thick clouds of Venus. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. 
Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sarah Seeger. Her longtime commitment to searching for signs of life on far distant planets led her to join a team that claimed to find a telltale sign of life almost next door in the clouds of Venus. One thing I had been working on the whole time was the search for signs of life beyond Earth. It's a topic that has captured the imagination of so many people, both scientists, science fiction writers, pretty much everybody. But the great thing is we're getting really close to, we hope anyway, making this a reality because of these exoplanet atmospheres. We're really hoping that we can find gases in the atmosphere that don't belong, that might indicate there's life there. Like on our planet Earth, we have oxygen that we humans need to breathe. It's a highly reactive gas, and it shouldn't be in our atmosphere at all unless it's continually produced. So without plants and without photosynthetic bacteria making oxygen, we would have no oxygen. Mm. So we're hoping that there are intelligent aliens out there looking back at our planet Earth with the telescopes we're hoping to build, and they see oxygen, and they're suspicious that there's life here. That's what we want to do. So I was working on, with my team, to compile a list of every possible gas that could be an indicator of life. And one of the gases we were studying is called phosphine, a phosphorus atom with three hydrogen atoms. And phosphine on Earth, by the way, it's only associated with life. Either us humans make it, or it's associated with bacteria in oxygen-free environments like wetlands or animal guts. But right when I was working on phosphine, and my team was working on phosphine, we learned that someone across the ocean, Professor Jane Greaves in the UK, was also working on phosphine as a sign of life. But she wasn't thinking about exoplanets. She was thinking about Venus, our sister planet right next door. And she had found... Um, tentatively some evidence of phosphine on Venus, and someone connected our two teams. And we started working with her on interpreting this finding. Now, my memory is that there was a tremendous pushback. There was a great amount of disdain. Huge disdain. So tell me about that. Well, many different things happened. At first, there was a huge pushback and a growing disdain right off the bat. People just couldn't get there. It was, it felt... It felt worse than the beginning of exoplanets. It was just very, very intense. People would immediately um, immediately write to us or post on social media that it's, you know, can't be right. It's got to be this other chemical reaction, you know, without really even thinking. But later on, there was a kind of more serious problem because our data, data in astronomy, it's eventually made public. So anyone who can has the skills to look at it, can analyze the data. And some other teams who looked at the data did not recover the signal of phosphine in the same data. Some teams did recover the signal in some of our data, but they wanted to attribute the signal in the data not to phosphine, but to another molecule called sulfur dioxide. And so there's a back and forth now in the scientific literature where Professor Jane Greaves, it's almost a full-time job for her and her data analysis team to respond to, like, every one of these criticisms in a formal way in a published journal. So the phosphine, by the way, it's very controversial. It still remains set. So from, from your point of view, 
why was it important to find phosphine? And from the other side, from their point of view, why was it so hard to accept? What did you feel it indicated you're finding it? Well, there's many different things that it, why it's important, because it's always important to do something new and risky that pushes the envelope, that opens up new opportunities. But looking for phosphine and, and finding it, if we can accept for a moment that it's there, it's really hard to make phosphine. We, the team, went through so many possibilities, like volcanoes or lightning or meteorites going into the atmosphere. And none of these processes we looked at could form enough phosphine to match the observations. So what it means is that there's either some unknown chemistry that we don't understand, or it leaves room for life to be present, floating around in the Venus atmosphere. And that could be life possessing the same kind of chemistry that we have? Well, maybe similar, but definitely not the same, because on Venus, in the clouds, the temperature is just right for life. And the thought is that because the Venus surface is too hot for life, that life could exist in the clouds where it's much cooler. But the clouds there, you know, I'm not sure if you know, but we have life in our clouds, bacteria that get swept up from the surface and stay in our clouds for about a week before they get rained back down. Hmm. So they go up and down. I don't know if they want to be up there, honestly. They probably, <laughs> they probably don't want to be there. You know, people send balloons up there with, like, metal rods, and the bacteria uh -huh. get attached to these rods, and they bring them back uh -huh. down, and then they study them. No, you know, I don't think I was aware of that. That's really yeah. fascinating. And, you know, during the time they're up there, they can get transported across continental scales. But on our Earth, you know, the clouds are fragmented. There's, you know, they kind of come and go. Well, on Venus, the clouds are always there. They cover the planet mm. permanently, and they are very vertically extensive, like 20 kilometers deep. The Venus atmosphere, it's like a massive carbon dioxide greenhouse atmosphere. And so the surface is very, very hot. But just like on Earth, when you hike up a mountain, it gets colder and colder. And mm. so too on Venus, until 50 kilometers above the surface, it is the right temperature for life. But the pushback is for a lot of reasons. One is the data. The other is it just seems insane because the clouds of Venus, they're not water clouds like our Earth clouds are. They're made of a very nasty, harsh chemical called sulfuric acid. It's more acidic than anything you've ever experienced, unless you've purposely worked with this chemical in the laboratory. It's nasty. So that was a an indication to the people pushing back that there couldn't be life floating around in a cloud like that? Yeah, it's another reason. It's another reason uh -huh. to I see. push back. And I just want to tell you something amazing. So many incredible things have happened since the announcement or the reported detection of phosphine on Venus. It has been an incredible awakening. New people have moved in the field. My team has been studying ways to go back to Venus to investigate these cloud droplets directly in the atmosphere. It's been nearly four decades since any probes have gone into the Venus atmosphere. Mm. And we found something really amazing. We... Um, and my team, we got some of the extended team members to do laboratory experiments with sulfuric acid. And they seeded sulfuric acid with like a small organic molecule. And it grew into a rich chemistry of organic molecules. So putting like one little molecule grew into bigger, more complex molecules. And this goes right against a concept that sulfuric acid, what the Venus clouds are made of, that the idea that it would be like sterile to any interesting chemistry. There's a lot of interesting chemistry that can happen in sulfuric acid. But the part that I thought you, Alan, might be really interested in is 
people found this, um, our colleagues found this, and then doing some digging on the internet, they discovered that the fact of sulfuric acid chemistry being interesting, it's actually domain knowledge in another industry. Which one? In oil industry. They use concentrated sulfuric acid to refine crude oil to more complicated organic molecules. Uh. So we now think, and this is again something people may push back on, that the cloud droplets of Venus, instead of being really boring and so harsh that nothing interesting can happen in them, that they can support a rich organic chemistry. You know, there's just sort of a bunch of more steps to get from rich organic chemistries to some kind of life, because all life needs organic chemistry. I get the impression that work you did decades ago is finally being corroborated by the Webb Telescope. Is that right? So all throughout the last couple of decades, people have used the Hubble Space Telescope and ground-based telescopes to observe exoplanet atmospheres and have found a bunch of different things. But the field of exoplanet atmosphere studies is just taking off hugely right now with the James Webb Space Telescope. And so far, a few different exoplanets have been observed, including one uh, called WASP-39b, and it has an incredibly beautiful spectrum. It's like a very broad spectrum and wavelength. It shows a huge feature of carbon dioxide. It shows sulfur dioxide. It shows a lot of different things. It's really just the beginning now of this whole new field. I want to match your feelings about how far this can go in terms of what's out there compared to what civilians like me think about when we think about life in other parts of the universe. I think we automatically think of life like ours, and we think of human life when, in fact, it could be a talking octopus. Exactly. So life could be very different from ours. But right now, we're not there yet. We're just hoping to find a sign of life. We won't know if that sign is from a little green humanoid or if it's just from simple single-celled bacteria. Is there any reason to think that if there's any kind of life anywhere, that somewhere there's life that has evolved to our level of intelligence and consciousness and beyond. There's really no reason not to believe that's possible Uh. somewhere because there are so many stars out there and so many planets, a bigger number than most of us can conceive. You know, we have our own galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars, and we think every star, nearly every star, has a planetary system. So there's trillions of planets right there, and not only that... Our galaxy is one but of more than hundreds of billions of galaxies. So somewhere out there, it has to be true. But we're just hoping it's true somewhere close enough to us that someday in the future, generations in the future, we can somehow make contact. Now, I got the impression reading your book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, the book is full of juicy analogies, specific stories, very human scenes. You're very revealing about your state, your emotional state, and that's admirable. It's admirable to see in any writer. But the idea of mixing the personal with the professional from a scientist is unusual, and it really helps us get inside your whole life and relate to you as the scientist who is actually a person. It reminds me of when we were talking before about what you had this idea to search for planets in a certain way, but you were not part of the team that actually used the idea. 
I put that together with what I've read you say about encouraging women scientists to have more confidence. Do you do that, and how do you do it? I do. I actually have developed a very specific confidence project. It's in the form of a six-week course women can take to help them overcome imposter syndrome. Pretty much every single young woman scientist has this problem. Lack of confidence, imposter syndrome, and I certainly had it at that age. The bottom line is to spend some time each day reflecting and visualizing on past accomplishments. And it sounds a bit like psychobabble, but owning your own pride. Like it's being Mm -hmm. able to look back and say, wow, I did such a great job on that. Because as women, and I'm not in the head of a man, so I don't know, but I know have been inside my own head, whether Mm -hmm. we're brought up this way or we're just like this, so hard on ourselves. And you have to spend more time being nice to yourself than being hard on yourself. And to, by, you know, owning these accomplishments, then the next time you try something, you realize you can do it because you did another hard thing. I'm really curious about how you did it because here you were being faced with all this disdain when you knew you had a worthwhile idea and you needed confidence to push ahead, but you weren't part of anybody's program to help you get that confidence. Where did you get it? Well, let me think about that for a minute. I mean, I'd say there's more than one source, but one of it was my dad who, he's not alive now, but he was a big believer in the power of positive thinking, which is where some of this comes from. And he mostly believed about being confident about the future. And just like athletes are taught to spend a lot of time visualizing, he really instilled that in me as a young person to articulate my dream, to think concretely about them, and to imagine myself being successful. So that, when you do that, it sort of sometimes just becomes a part of you. And I always had that inside me. And I also had a very determined ambition. But later on, in fact, after he died... I got myself a person, um, I'm just thinking of the right word, a professional coach. It's kind of Mm -hmm. like almost like a therapist for work, but not a therapist. They give you tools of things to do. And she gave me one specific tool that I have now sort of grown and adapted. It's called a vision book, and I call it now a confidence vision book. And the goal was to print out key things that you're proud of or accomplishments you've had in the past and to put those in the book and then to flip through the book every night before bed. It's like the last thing you're thinking about is just, and you have to capture the feeling. It can't just be, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. has to be, no, I did this. Wow, I'm so proud of this. I'm so happy. I feel so happy when I think of this. And it can be about work, but it can be about your personal life. It can be about whatever. It takes a long time to explain this, not just like the short time we have here. And I did that book and I looked at that book every night and I made the book and it grew so big. And now we just do the, the book on like Canva or on some kind of app. But yeah, it was really about the kind of changing your mind from landing on the negative to landing on a positive and to really taking ownership of things that you really deserve to be proud of and not just ignoring the good things and hammering away at yourself on the bad things. I love that. That really sounds like the road to confidence to me. It's such an organized way to do what a lot of us do accidentally. Exactly. Well, to get to this program I've developed, I tried the best I could to meet people, you know, like you and others and see why they're so confident. And all the women who got over 
the confidence problem on their own. Um, and I've seen all the people do this. Uh, I have a son, by the way, who's very confident. <laughs> He's very, he celebrates things. He, you know, was um, really, we didn't totally think he was ready to take his driver's license test. Um, and he didn't seem ready to go for us for, to be on the road. But he took the test and the tester said, you're confident about your driving. I'm confident about your driving. You pass. <laughs> and it was like, okay. He had it halfway there when he came in. Well, he was confident. And he took some time out to celebrate, bought himself a little gift. And so you see the confident people, they're already doing that. But with women, they never do it. They never spend a second being proud of something big. They just spend so much time being hard. And we just have to change the ratio of that. This is great. I wish we could talk more, but our time is running out. It's time for the seven quick questions. You game? I'm ready. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood the chemistry of the sulfuric acid clouds of Venus. Nobody ever answered that question that way. <laughs> That's great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? The best way to do, which, if it's possible, I try to lead them towards realizing that on their own. Huh. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? There's so many in that category. I'm not sure if I could pick one. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> That's hard. You have to, hopefully you're there in person with that person, and you can use your body language to signal that it's, it's just time to stop, or you try to get a word in edgewise and switch the conversation. Okay, let's say you're sitting next to someone you don't know at a dinner table. How do you start a genuine conversation? That's a tough one. For me personally, that's incredibly challenging, and I usually fail at that. And my family has a good laugh at that on my expense, so I usually try not to be in that situation. I try to bring someone with me, whether it's my husband Charles, or in the past I used to bring Melissa along and let them do that hard work. Let them start the conversation. Have you ever approached it uh, analytically to try to see if you could come up with a tool? Well, one time, one time we were on the roof of my building. It's very high. It's like 20, 25 stories watching the fireworks of 4th uh -huh. of July, which are over Boston. And my building looks over Boston. And my son, he was younger at the time. My younger son was younger. And he's like, hey, mom. Uh, he was watching. Um, my husband, Charles, was easily having a conversation with a stranger. And my son said, mom, hey, I bet you can't do that. Try it. So I tried <laughs> it with the person beside me, and it went nowhere. I just said, so how did you... <laughs> Yeah, so. I thought you were going to give me a, a tool you <laughs> invented. <laughs> no, I was just telling you, I don't have that yet, but I, I could think about it. Okay, this is the one that we already talked about, but maybe you have a, a vest pocket answer. What gives you confidence? What gives me conf confidence is my past successes, and I try to unpack why they worked out so that I can repeat that. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? There is a specific book that changed my life, um, and it is called The Sleeping Island. And it's about a teacher who used to take summers off, and he would explore Canada, northern, kind of northern Canada around 60-degree latitude at a time when it wasn't even mapped. This was sometime like in the late 1940s. And he explored it while Native people were still kind of living off the land, actually. And just it changed my life because I started to do wilderness journeys up there because of this book. And it helped me uh, become who I am today. Mm. This has been such an interesting conversation and on so many levels. And I thank you for devoting yourself 
to the book and to the work and to the possibility that, as you say in the book, we're finding out not just about other planets, we're finding out about ourselves and the search for other planets. The idea that we want to be the light in someone else's sky, as you say in the book. It's just really about connection. It's not just about us as us alone, but as us faced with other beings, other forms of life. So I, I thank you for your search and devoting your life to it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. For me, too. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Sarah Seeger is Professor of Planetary Science and Physics at MIT, where she's also affiliated with the MIT Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. She's the Deputy Science Director of a project called TESS, TESS for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which is looking for Earth-sized planets orbiting other stars. Echoing that search, her deeply moving memoir is called The Smallest Lights in the Universe. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Cassandra Quave. A childhood illness robbed her of a leg, but that hasn't stopped her from trekking through jungles, swamps, and mountains in search of medicinal plants. A lot of the plants that I work on are considered to be magical plants or plants that have a history in kind of witchcraft. And I really like witchy plants. I like plants that have this history of mysticism tied to them because that's usually a plant that has really interesting chemistry. So I think what we do in my research group that's really unique and helps to build on gratitude for herbs is really putting the science behind that. Cassandra Quaid seeking clues from plants to help counter the looming problem of superbugs next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. 
a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line, ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.